Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, which is a podcast that brings novelists and critics together to explore the making of novels and what to make of them. I'm John Plotz. You'll also be hearing later in the season from my partner in pod, Arthi Vade. Today, I'm going to be serving as the third wheel, very lucky third wheel, for a conversation between my pal Tara Menon of Harvard Society of Fellows. Hello, Tara. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm so glad you can do this. And the illustrious novelist Sigrid Nunez. Uh, hello, uh, Sigrid. Thank you so much for coming. Hello, and thank you for having me. Cool. And so Sigrid Nunez's seven novels include Ruena, Salvation City, and uh, last year's What Are You Going Through? So how do novelists think about talking to the scholars who study and teach and write about the contemporary novel? Well, one aspect of that question that struck us at Novel Dialogue is how many novelists actually live among us in the university teaching the same undergraduates we do. In fact, in her National Book Award winning The Friend, Nunez takes us behind the scenes of what it means to be a writer surrounded not only by other writers and their pets, but also by students. Sigrid, you're so brilliant at kind of condensing or excerpting the meaning from ordinary exchange. I think so good at seeing how the things that we say to one another relate to those deeper things that we mean and that we muse over behind the daily give and take. So I, I'm hoping that that is going to be kind of an inflection of um, what this conversation today is like. Um, so with that, um, over to the two of you. Let the games begin. Thank you, John. Thank um, you. I thought that we could start, Sigrid, by you reading a passage from your novel for Ruena, which was published in 2001. And to set this up for the listeners, for Ruena tells the story of a female nurse who served in the American war in Vietnam. And um, the unnamed narrator of the novel befriends the nurse long after she's returned from Vietnam. And the passage that Sigrid is about to read happened shortly after the narrator has learned of her friend's suicide. Thank you. I should say one more thing about, uh, about this. Um, the, um, 
Nguena has asked the narrator at the beginning of the story uh, if she would, she knows that the narrator is a writer. She knows that she has a big story. She served as a nurse in Vietnam. And she suggests that the narrator should write a book about her. Uh, and the narrator does not want to do that. She says, that's not the way I work. And so she doesn't. Um, and then sometime later, she discovers that Rowena has taken her life. And she remembers, among other things, this, this part that I'm reading takes place, I believe it's 14 weeks after Rowena takes her life. And she remembers that, among other things, she didn't really want to become too involved with a project or involved with Rowena because she was afraid that it, it would somehow make some kind of trouble for her. Hmm. And now I had trouble. Trouble working, trouble not working, trouble breathing in and out. News of her death broke all peace of mind, brought on headaches and insomnia, and all the while that feeling of urgency growing, intensifying, cutting off oxygen, pressing on my nerves. Pain. It was a good thing I was going away, a good thing I had a lot to take care of before the move. Throwing myself into these tasks brought some relief. The first week, the week before classes began, was sunless and brutally cold. I did not go out much. I spent most of my time cleaning and arranging things in my new apartment and office. I went at this business with a fury. And when I was not at it, I was restless. I did not know what to do with myself. There were moments when this restlessness waxed into anxiety and the anxiety into house-pounding, heart-pounding fear. In fact, it occurred to me one day that this banal formulation was perfectly apt. It described my situation exactly. I was living in fear. And as so often happens in such cases, after a while, since I was under no distinct discernible or even nameable threat, it would have been more accurate to say that I was living in fear of fear. Now would have been the ideal time to be engaged in some large project, all this solitude, all these hours. As it was, I had just discarded the draft of a manuscript I had been working on for months. How the word discarded bothers me. I want to say destroyed or even more ceremoniously burned. But when a writer says she burned her manuscript, suspect that she is not telling the truth. No one burns manuscripts anymore. Although once in a cabin in New Hampshire where I'd gone to write, because I happened to have a fire going, I did burn a draft, page by slow page, and nothing was ever more hypnotically satisfying. So this was another factor in my decision to move. Once again, I had gotten it into my head that in order to write, I needed to be somewhere else. I had brought with me the notebook in which I had written about Luana, and one day after I had settled in, after I had arranged everything in the apartment and office and there was nothing left to be cleaned or put away, I sat down to read what I had written. It was not much. At the time, I had been too distraught to think or to write clearly. I was afraid to dwell on Rowena then. So I started again. I quickly wrote down a description of how we met, and in the following days, I kept it up, writing about other things I recalled from the time we'd spent together. 
I did not set aside a special hour of the day for this. Instead, I went about my life, and in the midst of doing one thing or another, I would suddenly remember something and go write it down. And the more I wrote, the more I remembered, as always happens. And soon it had become a preoccupation, the feeling of urgency again. But something had changed. I was less anxious. The fretfulness that had troubled me all these weeks diminished, and I relaxed. I slept better at night. My spirits lifted. I could breathe. January, February, March, my birthday, spring. It was around the time of my birthday that I saw that out of these notes and recollections about Rowena, I might have begun a new book. I saw this partly because I was incapable of writing anything else, also because this writing was the only thing that could engage my full attention. A mother I knew once told me, when you have a child, if that child is not right there with you in the same room, you are never completely present yourself. Part of you is always elsewhere. I could have told her it was the same when you are writing a book. I went about my day, I did what I had to do, but whether it was reading or running errands or teaching class, my mind was never completely on these activities. Part of me was always elsewhere. I want to start somewhat cheerfully, I suppose, with grief and ask you um, why it is you think that you're so attracted as a writer to writing about grief. I know that's an odd word to use, attracted, but it comes up almost, I would say, in every single one of your books. So I wonder if we could start there. Loss is, is, the, is the predominant human emotion. It, we're, you know, we are always losing things. We are, you know, uh, it, it's not just losing those very, the most important things, which is the people we love when they die. But, but every day, you know, you lose your past, you lose your, you lose, you grow older, you lose your childhood, uh, you lose certain people uh, in your life. Nobody keeps everybody with them as they move on. Um, and then it just seems that, you know, because of the working of time, that you're always saying goodbye, you're always losing something, things are always, you know, ending up somewhere in, in, in you know, half remembered imperfectly remembered but still very very important and then of course at a certain point you people you know begin to die um and you lose more and more people you also you lose the the dreams that you had you you, you lose you lose um you know you lose parts of yourself in a sense so but in my case i think it's pronounced because of my parents. I think it's because of the of my immigrant parents and that they were both, um, well, my mother in particular was, 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 uh, was so nostalgic for the Germany that she had left behind and that she was never going to return to in any significant way. Um, and, you know, my father had lost... Um, members of his family uh he had he had, he, had, he had lost everyone really i mean when, you know by the time he was uh married to my mother and raising us he had uh no connections to the past but he too had a had you know a a, 
he didn't talk about it the way my mother did, but it was very, very clear how much, how much his life was defined by the loss of everything that he'd known when he, when he became an immigrant here. Um, so I think that, I think that has a lot to do with it. And I think the fact that my mother, uh, was so vocal about it and was so expressive about it. Um, you know, how, you know, she was, she was, she was someone who was mourning at all times that I knew her. She was mourning this past identity of hers and this home that she, that, that, that she lost. Um, so I think that that's really why, why it's more pronounced because it's, it isn't something that I, that I think about like, um, you know, oh, I want to write about the subject. I'm writing about people and experiences, whatever. And then it, it always comes, it always comes in as an, as an important uh, part of the, of the emotions that people are going through. I um, think that makes a natural transition to talk about your debut novel, uh, A Feather on the Breath of God, which the, what you spoken about just now so eloquently is really really comes through in that novel which is an as i understand an autobiographical novel about both of your parents your immigrant parents and your father who i believe was panamanian chinese is that correct yes and your german mother but you know that that book is a, a mournful book in my view but i wonder if i could suggest an maybe another source of the morning, which um, you mentioned briefly, this idea of losing past selves and losing childhood, because I think really some of the most exquisite writing I've ever read about bodies inhabiting physical practice and movement is your writing in that book about ballet and your dream of becoming a dancer. And for me, the mournfulness of that book comes through in what the narrator sees as her failure to become a dancer. And I was wondering now, some years after you wrote that book, whether you still think about dancing as a failure in your life or whether you think about it in a different way. And I also wondered after that, if you could talk a little bit about whether you see that there's a connection at all between your dancing life and your writing life. Well, I do because because you're absolutely right about how important that is in that book and and to me. Um, this was this was an early failure. You know, I was quite quite young when it when you know I realized that so this dream was not going to happen. Um, and I feel that 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 dream was so powerful and meant so much to me. That, uh, that, that the failure really, really was critical. I mean, it really, it really defined my life in many ways. Um, now, it's important to say that it was a dream, but it was also a fantasy because it wasn't going to happen. That doesn't make any difference to my, you know, <laughs> to my emotions, but <laughs> it, it, it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I started too late to, to, really become a, a ballet dancer and I wasn't interested in other kinds of dance. So it was a dream, but it was also a fantasy. Nevertheless, it was very, very real to me. It was what I wanted. And the fact that maybe if I had started earlier, I could have had it only made it more poignant. Mm -hmm. So one very good thing about uh, studying dance is that it, um, it the discipline 
learning discipline, you know, that was a very important thing to learn. Um, and, you know, it, taking it seriously and being taken seriously was very important. Um, and it was there that, you know, that it, that it, it first, where, where I first understood that this was the, that this was the miracle of participating in some kind of art was that it was a way of being a part of the world and, and being out of the world at the same time. And that came to be true when I was writing. Mm -hmm. However, because of that failure and that being the, the real dream, th that, that loss was always going to be there. It was not going to be made up for by writing. Writing was always going to be the thing I did because I couldn't be a dancer. And that hasn't really changed. It just isn't something that I think about day to day because I have my work to do. And because I'm not that troubled, you know, that I'd be so stuck in the past, but nevertheless, I know, I know it's there. And so in some ways, I'm grateful for it. Because I think it was important and very helpful to experience such a tremendous failure early in life. You know, it, it, um, it, it certainly, it, there is so much failure in writing, as you know, so much rejection, but also just failure, you know, you're writing, it's your language, suddenly you, you, you can't write a sentence, you work all this time on this story, and then you realize it's, it's not even, it, it's, it's never going to get it published, it's a terrible story. How did that happen? You know, there's so much failure in writing. So I think that that was, that was a good thing to understand what it meant to fail and that when you failed you didn't you know you didn't just stop um so yeah i think that 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 early experience and as i say i don't think about it all the time but you brought it up you know when you sent me the, in, mentioned it in your email and you're bringing it up now and i see it exactly yeah i see that you know you you're seeing it exactly as as you saw it from the beginning both how important it was and that the important that it that it was that a failure could i ask when did writing become a dream well writing was there before the dance um, right so because writing was there very very early as it is for so many writers and where it came from uh is very clear to me it came from reading so there was, I was this child, and when I was read to first, first because I couldn't read myself, and then when I learned to read, uh, reading was just an extraordinary pleasure. I, it made me incredibly happy. Um, when I was reading, I didn't feel, or being read to, I didn't feel like I, there's something better I should be doing. And so it came very naturally to me to then think, well, this is what I want to do. I want to write fairy tales. I want to write Dr. Zeus. Mm -hmm. I, I want to write Peter Pan and this kind of so so I, I knew that I wanted to do that. In fact, when I was for, for quite a while when I was young, I just assumed that I would be a children's book writer because that's what I was reading. Um, and then, you know, I wanted to do that. Um, uh, then you know, I've been elementary school, and 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 we're reading um, we're reading Dickens, and I didn't think you could. I mean, nothing could be better than that. And the idea of being able to 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 write books like that, and it was then you know it was that then I got to high school, and you know also at that time in the public schools that I went to, um, from from elementary school all the way through high school, there was creative writing. 
It was always there. It was either there was a poetry club or, or there was a class or it was part of English. It, I mean, it was always there. Mm-hmm. And whatever I wrote, I was encouraged. I, you know, I was meant to, I was, I was made to feel like this was something I could do that, that, you know, that, that was um, something that would please people and that I should, you know, I should enjoy and do and so on. And it was the, then when I was in, in high school that I decided I wanted to dance because I was living in New York City, I was able to to go to a place to study in a place where which was extremely serious and where you saw extremely famous dancers take class. I did not take class with them, but I sat in the doorway. Mm-hmm. Many, many hours I sat in the doorway and watched professional dancers take class. Um, and then I, I I thought that was what I what I wanted to do. And and then, you know, then I moved on. I ended up in in, in college and took writing workshops, but, but, but there was a, you know, it was, I really, I did feel like that was when I was going through the worst of that failure and the writing was okay. I could do that, but it was, you know, it was, it was, it would, I didn't think it would, could ever replace um, what it would have meant to, to be, you know, to be Suzanne Farrell. Mm-hmm. It's just, just, you know, that, that, you know, it just, it just, uh, there was no comparison. You know, I have to say it's music to the ears of me and John, who are Victorianists, to hear you say you thought that there was nothing better than Dickens when you and were... Peter Pan too. Don't forget. <laughs> um, but is that's there... another place where dancing meets uh, meets writing? That's I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, is are, are there several authors or an individual author who really shaped your writing when you were young? Was there a book that really transformed? the way you thought about writing the kind of book that you wanted to write? Um, not really, not, nothing in, in particular. They were, they were just the books and writers that I, that I loved. And it's interesting because, um, you know, when I think of some of these writers, um, these writers whom I love and who have meant so much to me, for example, Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've read everything, the fiction, the nonfiction, the letters, the diaries, everything. And, uh, you know, and I, 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 I have had the strongest feelings about her. But I, I don't, I, she's not an influence in the sense that I don't, I don't write like her. I couldn't be more different as a person, my background, everything about me. Um, but nevertheless, she's, she's been a kind of, you know, guiding spirit. Um, mm-hmm. And I should say that when I was first writing fiction as, as a young adult, uh, or well, in college, for example, right after college, everything I wrote for a while was bad Virginia Woolf. <laughs> and I don't regret that. See, that's another thing that I don't regret because I think you can learn so much from that. Um, so, and then Elizabeth Hardwick, who was actually my teacher for a couple mm-hmm. of semesters and an incredibly important mentor, I don't write anything like Elizabeth Hardwick, but, but but a very important person. And in fact, her Sleepless Nights, which is autofiction and which is a certain kind of book, was certainly a major, major influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susan Sontag, who could not have been more of an influence on me, but, you know, but my work is nothing like her work either. But mm-hmm. there are particular books um, that have been, uh, particular writers that have influenced particular books. For example, Foruena was very influenced by two writers, V.S. Naipaul 
and W.G. Sebald. Hmm. And I, I, you know, I, I uh, you know, even when I, I remember very clearly that the, the, that that was what I was after a certain kind of tone. Um, I, so, huh? I, I, I do think I, I, I see the Zebald in in For Ruena, and I, I've been thinking about this a, a lot recently because I'm thinking about teaching a, a class on city fictions, and that um, you know Deju Cole is often seen as the inheritor of, of Zebald, and and how male I, I've been thinking about how male writers and male narrators in particular are the ones who get to be the flaneurs of, of New York City. But I think that, you know, in, in Foruena, the, the narrator has these, the, the shoe shine men passage on the ferry is really some of my very favorite writing about New York, but there's so much New York, you know, in my mind, that novel is two novels. It's a Vietnam novel, and then it's a, it's a New York novel. I think the the word that I would use, I suppose, to describe your novels would be something like fictional memoir. Mm-hmm. That it that it feels like that it feels like a memoir. And, and you know, the passage that you read from from For Ruena right at the beginning, it, it feels to me very similar to the very best grief memoirs, like C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed or Joan Didion's um, Blue Nights or A Year of Magical Thinking, that there's something I think about the intimacy of the narrative voice that it feels in some ways this tremendous compliment that everyone thinks that this is autofiction and that you're not making it up because it feels so intimate and 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 real, I think. But I, I think that if I was in your place, I would feel annoyed <laughs> by people calling it autofiction because it feels as though they think that you're not making it up. And that's <laughs> fundamental to the to the job of being a novelist. But well, I I, I feel like I I can't afford to complain because the way I presented, of course the reader is going to think that. Yeah. You know. So um there are other writers like Annie Erno mm-hmm. is another writer who, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, she, her her, it's called fiction. It's called memoir. It's uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think in in, in it, well here it's called fiction. But see, I'm not sure what it's called in France. But it's a uh, but her, um, you know, uh, she's another she's another writer who. Uh, you know where where that 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 tone of intimacy you're talking about yeah um that's definitely something i want to want to have mm-hmm. like i'm talking to like i'm telling you something that i want you to know um about my life and about how i feel about this mm-hmm. how i observe things what what would you say to a comparison that goes all the way back to like 18th century fiction, the way that people responded to, to Daniel Defoe. Like I was just thinking of that amazing fact that that for Swift's Gulliver's Travels, he put his own face on the frontispiece and called it Captain Gulliver. You know, <laughs> like that it was literally a self-portrait. And I don't know, does that does that resonate at all? Like the early days of fiction, where people were figuring out the truth in fiction. A little like, bit. I think I think it has to do with that first person. Yeah. Well, if, I mean, if you, if you are, you know, it's interesting though because if you if you think of something like David Copperfield, mm-hmm. right? 
it's it is an autobiography. I was born. I mean, it is it, it's supposedly David telling his story, but that but it, it's not what it's not like an autobiography. It's not like a memoir. Yeah. Um, David is off isn't even there when when much of the action is taking place, right? It's just and we just kind of accept it. Um, I, I I am also um, I, I you know I was I was moved by uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich when you know she talked about um, how you know the world is is different now it, it, you know that that it was different in Chekhov's time we we need a different kind of fiction from his kind of fiction mm-hmm. and she she saw it as you know I think one one word for it is docu docu novel the docu novel yeah. um, a documentary novel yeah documentary fiction right and that you know that also for me is a, is a, an interesting way to to look at it but when 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 my narrator um recedes to some extent it, well particularly in Fuerwena like mm-hmm. I'm there for much of the time my narrator my Sigrid like narrator the writer and so on but then it's Rowena's story, you know. I'm, I, I I let her whole story uh, come out um, as if I knew everything that happened there, just by imagining it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I I I I went back to that to some extent with with the friend and uh, you know trying to imagine the dog's life. Um, and you know, I I I I. I in what are you going through? Again, the narrator—it's a chorus of voices um, telling their stories, uh, and she orchestrates it to some extent. But it's very different from a memoir, uh, where, in general, the writer—it's about me. You know, the it's—it's—it's it's something. If you're telling a memoir, something that happened to you. You know, not what. People. Can I, 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 you have that passage about um, Alexievich and the friend, right? You talk about the documentary yeah. fiction, and in, 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 yes. and I was really struck by that because, because I was thinking about how it, it almost seems as if you're describing two different pathways. Because the Alexievich, she's presenting to you these are real voices, like she wants you to yeah. believe not in the narrator but in those other voices. But you're saying that the way your novels work is to kind of make you believe in the person, even though it's an invented person. Yes. Of the narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I might be using things from people I've really listened to, mm. but it, but it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm always inventing it. I, I, you know, even with my novel, The Last of Her Kind, which is completely different from these books, but it is in the first person. And when I was working on it and, and people I knew who had been, who knew me from school, who had read my first book, I said, oh, you know, I'm, the book I'm writing now, I'm setting it on the Barnard Columbia campus from 1968 to 72 when we were there. And they were like, you are not going to do that. Don't tell me. You are not really going to do that because they were imagining it just the way I talked about my parents for real that I would be. And I said, Oh no, 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 you don't have to worry about that. I said, no, none of, none of it is really, I'm, I'm not writing about us or, or any of us or, you know, 
but you will recognize it all anyway. Yeah. You know, because it, you know, so I wanted it set there during that time. But again, this woman, Anne Dooley Drayton, who, who, who is, again, she's the, the narrator has a role. She has a life. Things happen to her. But she's telling someone else's story largely in that book once again. So that is clearly something that really appeals to me. But again, it's all invented except the people who read it, you know, who lived during that time, you know, they record, it seems, it seems like documentary to, to, to a lot of people. Readers of that book have said that it was like a documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I was able to do that without, without making a single friend angry. <laughs> I did, you know, or, or, or being accused of, of using anyone's life without their permission because I, 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 I wouldn't have done that to them. I did it to them. Parents are different. <laughs> Parents are different, but I, I wouldn't, there isn't anyone else in my life, neither my siblings or anyone I've had a relationship with. I, w- I would never use them uh, fictionally um, the way, the way I, I wrote about my parents. I, I just wouldn't do that. But it's something that I, that I like, that I enjoy, uh, you know, bringing up a movie or, or a book or, and just uh, uh, talking about it from the point of view of the narrator. And, and in every case, uh, in every case, the view that I'm presenting is in fact my view. Uh-huh. It's, not, it's not something I disagree with. I'm giving it to the character, but, but I disagree with it. So... This is what I meant by essay novel that, you know, that there's, that there's, I like having the opportunity to do this, this thing called literary thinking that Javier Marias, that was his idea that, um, you know, he said in my, in my books, there's a story, there are characters, things are happening, but I, I like to stop at a certain, certain places and, and digress or rant or meditate, or reflect, and that, you know, there are many writers who, who do that, and mm-hmm. to me, it's, I, the freedom of that is just wonderful, that I can, I can stop, and then, you know, reflect on something, and I, 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 at this point, I wouldn't want, I don't think I would want to write anything that did not allow me to do that. Maybe that is one question that I would like to finish with, which is, um, I see there being quite different styles in your collection of novels. I would put Foruena and The Last of Her Kind sort of on one side and The Friend and What Are You Going Through on another side. And I wonder whether you see there as being more continuities than that, if if The Friend marks a sort of spare philosophical style and a a novel like Furuena, you know, I I grew up in Singapore and I felt like I could feel the heat and humidity of Vietnam when I, when I read that novel, it's this atmospheric detailed descriptions. And so is that a conscious choice? Is that a turn away from a certain style or am I misreading the differences entirely? Well, as you said before, uh, for Wena is is like two different novels. There's the Vietnam, and then there's the the experience of, but there's also the the writing narrator. So I mm-hmm. would I would say that that part of the novel, the writing narrator, is closer to the friend and what are you going through? Yeah. But um, but I agree there is a there is a, a real change there. However, when I wrote the friend, when I finished it. 
only until only when I finished it, I thought, oh, you know, this narrator, I've seen her before. <laughs> this is the same narrator as a feather on the breath of God. Uh-huh. It's older. And the Fuerwena narrator was somewhat older. Now, you know, and I I I, I realized that and whereas the other books it's it's different. They're definitely even even though it's the first person, the the narrator of the last of her kind is is not yeah that is not one of those. And then what are you going through? As soon as I started writing it, very early on, I said, "Oh, this is the same narrator as the friend." Mm-hmm. This is this, even though things might be different, she might be you know have different experiences or whatever, but. Her sensibility, her voice, and her way of looking at the world is the same. Yeah. And this book I'm working on now, now I'm conscious of it from, you know, it's not a discovery of any kind. I, I know that that is exactly what I want. But I'm going to um, wrap up with the um, novel dialogue signature question, which is when you're really in the midst of a writing spell, do you have a particular treat that you turn to when things are really getting tough? Well, no, I sort of, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't have, a, you mean like a particular treat of what kind, of any kind? Any, any kind. kind. Not really, and the reason why is because it's such a long slog. Uh-huh. Right? It just um, so you would be treating yourself over <laughs> over a long period of time. You you don't sneak out to film forum or or eat a particular candy bar or anything like that. But I do I do sneak out to film forum. I do and I adore film film forum and can't wait till they're back. But um, but I wouldn't associate that as a treat with the work. You know what I do do it anyway. But it it does remind me of um, I read somewhere uh. Where Joan Didion would talk, she actually, the way she the way she writes it, uh, how at, at a certain point in the day, four or five in the afternoon, the ritual she would have the whiskey, and she would need that moment with the whiskey to go over what she'd written that day. Yeah. And um, I thought about that. I was even doing that, and then I thought, you know, I could just have the whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You just sometimes you can just have the whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching at NYU, and at the end of the semester, this I had I had told this story at a reading that they had come to. And the end of the semester, they gave me a, a bottle of whiskey, good good whiskey, and it came in a in a in a wooden box, and they had all signed it on the on the outside. They wrote, "Sometimes you can just have the whiskey." Oh, yeah. I think that's great. I think that's that's such a great answer to the question because then, right, it's not just, it's not Pavlovian then. Sometimes it's just a treat. It's just a treat. It's not a treat for writing. It's a treat. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say as we approach the end of another novel dialogue that I and Arthi and I would like to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and Duke University. Nye Kim is our production intern and designer. Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. 
And we hope that if you liked what you heard, you will subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please tell your friends about us. Conversations from season one include Kelly Rich with Teju Cole, Elizabeth McMahon with Helen Garner, Bruce Robbins with Orhan Pamuk. So there's a, there's a real New York theme here. Um, so uh, Tara, thank you so much. Sigrid, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much, Sigrid. This was really such a pleasure. Totally. And to, and to all the, our listeners, thank you so much and hope to talk with you again soon. Bye.